0: Breast cancer. Those are two words your patients don't want to hear and news that you don't want to deliver. Unfortunately for one in eight American women, it's a truth they'll have to face in their lifetime. And the risks are clear. Besides being female, the two major risk factors for developing breast cancer are advancing age and family history. In fact, about 80% of women diagnosed with invasive breast cancer are age 50 and older. And while family history of the disease is an important risk factor, up to 80% of women diagnosed with breast cancer don't have one. Unfortunately, many women still have misperceptions about who is at risk. They think, I don't have a family history of breast cancer, so I don't need to worry. My mom had breast cancer, but I'm only 43. The good news is that with early detection, we can try to reduce the risk of breast cancer mortality. Through awareness and education, we hope to improve patients' willingness to be screened for breast cancer. To help in this effort, Lilly has created the Strength in Knowing Breast Cancer Awareness Program and website. It's designed to educate women about their individual risks and provide a means for them to share this knowledge with others. At strengthinknowing.com, women can hear from professionals as they discuss the importance of knowing the risks of breast cancer. Find out about events they can attend in their city and help spread the message. The resources may also be helpful to you and your practice. There is strength in knowing about the risks of breast cancer. So spread the word today. Visit strengthinknowing.com and tell your patients to visit too.
1: I didn't realize I was at risk until I visited. I told my sister, my mother, and my aunt. This program is sponsored by Eli Lilly and Company. Answers that matter.
0: You're listening to ReachMD XM 160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly. Your host is Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine.
1: For young women facing cancer today, there are new treatments and concerns that can be allowed to discuss their fertility. There are treatments that may be available that we have never had access to before that offer them amazing hope. I'm your host and author, Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, Assistant Professor of OBGYN at Northwestern University. And joining me today is Dr. Clarissa Garcia, Assistant Professor of OBGYN at the University of Pennsylvania Hospitals. She is also a member of the Reproductive Endocrine and Infertility staff and an accomplished researcher currently working on ovarian function and fertility before, during, and after cancer therapies. Dr. Garcia and I are going to be discussing some of the options and ways to preserve fertility. Dr. Garcia, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure.
1: So, you know, the idea of being able to help preserve fertility for these patients undergoing so much stress already involving cancer therapy is just very exciting.
2: Absolutely. I think it's really an area that's just been growing over the past few years, and we certainly have a long way to go, but it's very exciting to be able to offer women the opportunity to have children after cancer.
1: You were saying that there are ways to preserve fertility. Can you expand on some of the ideas behind that?
2: Well, the most established way to preserve fertility includes performing in vitro fertilization and freezing embryos prior to cancer therapy. In addition, oocyte cryopreservation or freezing a woman's eggs has recently shown promise as well. In addition, ovarian tissue cryopreservation has been investigated and obviously, after cancer therapy, there are options for a woman who goes through um, premature menopause and is unable to have children herself using donor embryos or donor egg. So
1: these are all very exciting options, and I'd like to talk about each of them a little separately. For the patients who would undergo IVF and the idea of freezing an embryo, we're assuming in that circumstance that that person has a partner to which they have sperm available. Is that correct?
2: Yes, or some young women will choose to use donated sperm to conceive in pregnancy as well. But yes, the majority of these women have a partner, and that obviously makes the process much easier.
1: What would you say is the time cycle for IVF to occur from a beginning to the end of a cycle where you could retrieve an embryo?
2: It's anywhere between two and three weeks. In general. And it depends on the types of protocols that we use. There are various different protocols and some ways to shorten the length, but probably at minimum, the shortest period of time would be about two weeks.
1: And in someone who is awaiting cancer therapy, do you think that the delay of two to four weeks is something that'll have an impact on their overall recovery and five-year survival rate?
2: It's possible. I think we don't really know the answer to that. Many patients with cancer have to undergo some sort of surgery and so usually there is some delay of anywhere between two and four weeks after the surgical excision of the tumor which allows time for IVF to occur. But in some cases, with leukemias and lymphomas, it is possible that we are delaying really life-saving treatment, and the effect of that is unclear.
1: You know, when someone undergoes IVF, there's an enormous amount of hormonal chemistry involved. Do you feel that the exposure of this chemistry to a patient who has cancer may be a detriment to their long-term care?
2: It depends what kind of cancer we're talking about, I think. The cancer that most patients worry about with estrogen exposure is breast cancer, and so Again, it's unclear whether a two-week period of quite high estrogen levels actually will make an impact in their long-term survival and prognosis. We do not have information on that. One would think that it's a very short period of time. It shouldn't make a big difference. But again, we just don't know.
1: Do you think in those patients the spontaneous IVF cycle could be safer than the chemically enhanced cycles we often do regularly?
2: Well, let's talk a little bit about what that means. You know, a natural cycle basically means that a woman is allowed to, you know, doesn't go on any medication. Basically, most women start out with several follicles in their ovaries and then one follicle dominates and one egg is released. So one can just simply follow by ultrasound the follicle and then retrieve an egg from that follicle. Typically, you really don't get more than one or two eggs in a natural IVF cycle. And if typically fertilization rates are about 50%, so you may or may not get a fertilized embryo to actually freeze. When we're talking about the traditional IVF cycle, we give medication called gonadotropins Typically, a follicle stimulating hormone, which is given in an injection form daily with monitoring of estrogen levels and ultrasound monitoring. In those cases, you know, we typically will stimulate multiple follicles to reach the mature stage, anywhere from 10 to 25 follicles typically. And of those, you know, we hope to get around 10 eggs or so. Again, so you end up with many more embryos at the end of the day using a more of a traditional IVF cycle.
1: You're listening to Advances in Women's Health on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, and today I am speaking with Dr. Clarissa Gracia. Dr. Garcia, can you comment on why it's taken so long for our technology to start preserving oocytes or eggs?
2: There are several difficulties when in freezing an egg, and thawing it successfully to lead to a viable fertilizable egg. Basically, it depends on kind of the morphology of an egg, which is quite a large structure compared to a normal cell. In addition, the egg is arrested in meiosis, so there's a meiotic spindle in the middle of the egg that's very fragile, and the freezing and thawing process is quite traumatic and sometimes can disrupt that spindle. In addition, there's this shell around the egg, or the zona pellucida, which hardens with the freezing and thawing process. All of those things have led to, you know, many trials and many failures in egg freezing. Recently, you know, techniques have improved. The biggest breakthrough probably was the advent of intracytoplasmic sperm injection to bypass that hardened zona pellucida. And so that's been a big breakthrough. In addition, there are new freezing methods. You know, there's vitrification, which is a very rapid freezing method, which seems to show promise. Things are improving, and some programs have shown more and more success with this technique.
1: When you're comparing embryo preservation versus oocyte preservation, can you comment on the possibility of usage of either of those in the future and and success rates with either of those separately?
2: The success rate of embryo cryopreservation is roughly 30 to 40% per embryo transfer, and typically two to three embryos are transferred in a given patient. With egg cryopreservation, typically the pregnancy rates have been estimated to be around 2 to 3% per frozen egg, so definitely somewhat lower, although more recently programs have been reporting better success rates, and we hope that eventually success rates will mirror those of traditional embryo cryopreservation. But at this point, it's just not the case.
1: And it's interesting at the recent American Society for Reproductive Medicine, one of the addresses by a key speaker was quoted to say that oocyte preservation should be considered experimental and that if oocyte preservation should not be offered as a means to defer reproductive aging. Are you concerned at all about this technology being abused by those who haven't found the right sperm donor yet?
2: But I do worry about it partly because I think the concern of the American Society for Reproductive Medicine was that yes, it's still somewhat investigational, the success rate's low, and for women to be going through this medical procedure which involves, you know, still stimulating the ovaries and retrieving the eggs and potentially paying money to go through that process and paying to freeze these eggs for very limited benefit, that, you know, there are some ethical issues involved in that. And I think that until it really, the success rates improved, egg freezing should be done under study protocols.
1: Now, you had also recorded or noted a other type of ovarian preservation, actually ovarian tissue preservation or freezing. Can you comment a little bit about how that's done and what the outcome of that may be?
2: Right. Again, ovarian tissue cryopreservation would be useful for the young patient without a partner because you don't need sperm to create an embryo. Basically, that would involve performing a laparoscopy to remove either biopsy, a portion of the an ovary, or potentially remove an entire ovary and then basically freeze that ovary or the portions of the ovary for use later on. At a later time, that tissue could either be retransplanted in a patient which has been done and there have been two pregnancies reported in the literature or the tissue could be grown in vitro and the follicles matured to perform in vitro fertilization and then the embryos themselves could be transferred into a woman when
1: they're reimplanting the ovarian tissue do you know where they're putting that in the surgical technique
2: there are various places that have been tried, you know, the reports that have been published where the tissue was actually retransplanted in the site of the ovary. So these cases are pretty controversial because it's actually not clear which egg was Produced the pregnancy. So a woman could have just regained her natural ovarian function and the egg could have been from her own. From the original? Yeah, Mm -hmm. from the original ovary that was not frozen. Other investigators have tried to transplant the ovarian tissue under the forearm skin or under the skin on the abdomen. The problem is that that tissue you know, basically blood supply needs to grow towards that tissue. And there is some difficulty with, you know, necrosis at the site of the tissue. Some of the tissue dies when you transplant it and so forth. And so there is damage to the follicle. I am your host,
1: author, and Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, assistant professor of OBGYN at Northwestern University. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.
0: Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health sponsored in part by Eli Lilly with your host, Dr. Lisa Mazzullo. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show or to download this segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health.